0: Hello and welcome to The Long Short, a new podcast brought to you by AIMA, the Alternative Investment Management Association, focusing on the very latest insights on hedge funds and private credit. My name is Drew Nickel. AIMA is the global representative for the alternative investment industry, with around 2,000 corporate members spread across 60 countries. Of these, our fund manager members account for approximately $2.5 trillion in hedge fund and private credit assets. Each weekly episode of The Long Short will examine topical areas of interest from across the alternative investment universe with news, views and analysis delivered by Amos Global Team, as well as a host of industry experts. So whether you are a hedge fund or private credit industry veteran, a student of the industry or just someone interested in learning more about hedge funds and private credit, this podcast will be your ideal companion to help navigate you through the long and short of this fascinating industry. After months of discussion and debate, the landmark Financial Services and Markets Bill, or FSMB for short, was introduced to UK Parliament on the twentieth of july twenty twenty two, which turned out to be the last piece of legislation under the Johnson government.
1: So what is the FSMB and what should you need to know? But joining us today is Darren Fox, partner at Financial Services Regulatory Group at
0: Simmons and Simmons. Darren, you are very welcome to the Long Thank you very much,
2: Joe and Tom. It's good to be here.
1: Let's start with that very question then. What is the FSMB or the UK Financial Services Markets Bill? So what's the long
2: story short? Um, So it's a brand new piece of draft UK financial services legislation. And it's actually the first piece of major framework legislation that we've had in the UK since 2012. As Drew mentioned, it was late before Parliament in late July. So we've now got a different PM, different Chancellor and effectively a different government, uh, which seems to have slightly different priorities and approach to the previous government. So we'll have to see whether or not this affects the direction of travel of the bill. And what the bill does is to set out the framework for the UK's approach to the regulation of the financial services industry in a post-Brexit world. I guess it's important to say what it's not trying to do. So what it's not doing is replacing entirely the current regime. So it's not repealing Financial Services and Markets Act 2000, the Regulator Activities Regime, the Financial Promotion Regime, not changing who the regulators are. We still got the SCA as the Conduct Regulator and the PRA as the Prudential Regulator for banks and insurers. But it's not like 2000 where we saw the entire framework repealed and replaced. However, within the confines of the existing framework, the new bill is attempting to introduce some pretty radical changes. What are those changes, well, the government sets the scene on its website. Uh, I'm going to read a quote. It says, the bill seizes the opportunity of EU exit, tailoring financial services regulation to UK markets to bolster the competitiveness of the UK as a global financial centre and deliver better outcomes for consumers and businesses. I think there are two key concepts in that commentary, which we're going to come back to later. First of all, the opportunities of UK exits. And secondly, the bolstering of UK competitiveness. So among other things, the bill implements the outcomes, something known as the Future Regulatory Framework Review, or FRF for short. If listeners missed that while it was happening, uh, it was a consultation that was conducted by the government between November last year and February this year about the entire future of UK financial services regulation. And the outcome document of the FRF review was published on the same day as the bill. So the two are very much interlinked. The bill's already had two readings in the Commons, uh, and now it's with the Public Bill Committee, who are scrutinising it on a line-by-line basis, and they're expected to report to the House uh, by Thursday, the 3rd of November.
0: So as with uh, any conversation around regulation in the UK, at some point, it does have to be put through the lens of Brexit. And you, you mentioned part of that there. So what does the bill say about retained EU laws and regulations? Um, well,
2: it certainly starts with the bank. So the very first line of the bill says that a whole list of legislation set out in Schedule 1 is hereby revoked. And Schedule 1 contains a list of all the major pieces of formally directly applicable EU financial services legislation that became retained law when Brexit happened. So among the lists um, are some pieces of EU regulation that are incredibly relevant to the funds industry. For example, MIFIR, uh, marketing Financial Instruments Regulation, the Short Selling Regulation, the Market Abuse Regulation, the Securitisation Regulation, EMIR, SFTR, CRR. And the schedule also contains a list of literally hundreds of items of UK secondary legislation that's derived from or connected with EU legislation. And the key thing you notice when first reading the bill is that it doesn't contain any replacement for any of these items. So you'd be forgiven for thinking at first blush that this bill represents an immediate taking of an axe to the UK's financial services regime, leaving us with significantly reduced levels of regulation. It's only when you get into the small print that you realise this is not quite so radical a change, at least for the time being. When I talk about the small print, I'm talking about the commencement provision. So it's a feature of UK legislation that each section in, in an Act has a commencement date. And while some of the provisions of the bill are going to take effect immediately upon the the granting of royal assent or within a specific period after that, crucially, the provision that revokes all retained EU financial services legislation is to come into into force on a date that's going to be set out in future Treasury regulations. Additionally, the Treasury can, by regulation, exclude individual pieces of legislation that are in the list uh, from that revocation process. So where does that leave us? Well, it means for the time being, despite what Section 1 says, that all retained EU financial services legislation remains in force. In that sense, if we're being cynical, Section 1 is much more of a grandstanding political statement of future intent than a piece of legislation that actually does something, as the actual revocation will require separate commencement orders. And crucially, the explanatory notes that accompany the bill clarify that the revocation of individual pieces of retained EU law It's only expected to take place once replacement domestic legislation is ready to take its place. The process of creating replacement domestic rules and then activating that revocation provision, moving to what the government describes as the comprehensive SMA model, where all of the UK's rules are either in or derived from the Financial Services and Markets Act, is likely to take several years to complete. The government concedes that in the explanatory notes. So this is really about the government being able to say we've put in place legislation that sets in stone the repeal of retained EU financial services law but without giving any clarity yet as the timetable as to when exactly that will happen. What it does signify very strongly though is that the prospect of the UK going down the road of attempting to achieve EU equivalence is well and truly dead in the water. So the process of replacing retained EU legislation is likely to take us well beyond the next election and in that regard the comments from Sakir Keir Starmer and the other members of the Labour Party last week at the Labour Conference in Liverpool that Labour also now intends to make Brexit work are significant, as they suggest the approach set out in the bill seems unlikely to be changed significantly, even if we get a new government. What's clear is that it's potentially going to take a huge amount of work to create a new domestic UK regime. The temptation for the powers that be may be to transpose the existing legislation into the UK rule, but with minor tweaks although some of the safeguards built into the new regime suggest that that path won't be taken. That, I think, would be a missed opportunity to create a best-of-breed rulebook in the UK, something which we'll come back to later.
1: Um, Darren, you mentioned uh, earlier the remark that you said about um, the bill bolstering the competitiveness of the UK as a global financial centre, and um, this has be mentioned on the UK government website. How does the bill reflect
2: that? Absolutely, Tom. There is a new focus on the competitiveness of UK PLC. So the bill inserts a new um, subsection 4A into section 1B of the FSMA, and that creates a new obligation on the FCA, which says when discharging its general functions, the FCA must, so far as reasonably possible, act in a way which, as a secondary objective, advances the competitiveness and growth objective. And that competitiveness and growth objective is defined as subject to aligning with relevant international standards, the objective of facilitating the international competitiveness of the economy of the UK, including in particular the financial services sector and the growth of that economy in the medium to long term. So while the SDK's primary objectives remain the same, so as a reminder, that's the strategic objective of ensuring markets function well, and the three operational objectives of consumer protection, market integrity and competition for consumers. These are now supplemented by a secondary objective for promoting international competitiveness and growth. And that, I think, marks a fundamental change to the role of the FCA. It's effectively an instruction from government parliament not to regulate in a manner that unnecessarily hinders the international competitiveness of the UK. Additionally, in a part of the bill headed accountability of regulators, the bill also imposes additional obligations on the FCA, which I think dovetail quite nicely with this competitiveness objective. So there's an obligation on the FCA to keep its rules under review for compatibility with its general objectives, including the new secondary objective. The, The Treasury can require the FCA to review particular rules um, and the FCA has to consult with an independent cost-benefit analysis panel in relation to any cost-benefit analysis that it performs in relation to consultations on new rules. And there's a feeling among some of the industry I talk to that some of the SCA's cost-benefit analyses are plucked from thin air. I think all of this is designed to lead to better, more internationally competitive regulation. And it means that FCA rulemaking... And decisions could become more susceptible to scrutiny, challenge, and potentially judicial review. For example, for failing to take into account that competitiveness and growth objective adequately when coming up with new rules.
0: Now, this being the long short, I have to ask, what does this mean for the fund industry specifically? At the top, we quite boldly describe this as a game changer. Is that
2: um, fair? Potentially, yes, Drew. Uh, I think if it's done well, it is a game changer. It's, in principle, a very important opportunity for UK PLC to create a best-of-breed regulatory regime that properly differentiates between different parts of the financial services industry. Um, As long as I can remember, as long as I've been doing this job, the rules that apply to UK firms have too often taken a one-size-fits-all starting point as the approach that seeks to apply the same rules to both buy-side and sell-side firms despite their very different business models. Good regulation builds from the bottom up by saying let's look at the business model of this type of entity, understand where the risks lie and create rules that reflect those risks. Bad regulation says here's a risk, let's apply our rules to everyone no matter how relevant or irrelevant that risk is to the firm in question. We've seen some improvement to that state of affairs over the years. When I started advising, the UK rulebook was very much geared towards equity stockbrokers. And over the years, there's been more granularity and differentiation that's become a feature. But this has often led to increased complexity and duplication. And you only really have to look at the complex matrix of conduct of business and prudential rules applied to AFMs and method top-ups to see that as a prime example. This trend towards over complexity and duplicative and sometimes conflicting regulatory obligations is an even more prevalent feature of EU legislation. And many of our clients at Simmons spend a lot of time, effort, money complying with rules that, in their view, seem to achieve very little. So for me, the new bill represents a pretty unique opportunity to redress the balance and create a regulatory regime that works um, And I think that new competitiveness growth objective should encourage the FCA to carry out a root and branch reform of the rulebook to achieve that best-in-class status and make the UK a really attractive location in which firms can choose to base themselves. Um, I'm not saying, though, don't get me wrong, that UK regulation should become light touch. That would be a mistake. What it needs to be is proportionate, differentiated, i.e. tailored to different business models, and focused. And I think every single rule in the rule book should now be considered against the new competitiveness growth objective. If the benefit of a current rule is not obvious, then the default position should be to change or remove it. That's the ideal outcome here. That's what will make this a game changer. It will require time, patience, proper consultation, and communication with the industry, and a degree of originality. What I'm worried about is that we could end up with a hastily cobbled together set of rules based largely on a copy out of the old EU framework that leaves the industry no re- no, not really any better regulated than it was under the existing regime. Only time will tell. The important thing, I think, is for the industry, whether individually or through trade associations like Ama, to engage and engage early to make sure that we go on the right path with this.
3: This fall... The eighth annual EMA Global Investor Forum will be returning in person to the Ritz-Carlton, Toronto on October 13th and 14th. Last year's event virtually convened over 425 attendees from 26 countries, making it the Global Investor Conference for the Global Association. This flagship investor conference will convene institutional allocators, family offices, managers, and service providers over one and a half days with one third of delegates being investors. So join leaders from Blackstone, IMCO, Bridgewater, BlackRock Alternative Advisors, OP Trust, University Pension Plan, Morgan Stanley Wealth Management Canada, and more at the Ritz-Carlton Toronto in October. Last time we had in person in 2019, we sold out with a wait list. Register at ama.org events, Soon to secure your spot at the EMA Global Investor Forum today. So, now, if you were
1: involved in the process of of, um, rewriting the regulatory requirements of the UK for asset managers as part of this initiative, what changes
2: would you seek to make? Um, It's a very interesting question. I think I would revisit the rulebook using three key principles as my sort of guiding lights, first of all, does this rule actually benefit anyone at all? Uh, Secondly, is it working as intended? And thirdly, does it sufficiently differentiate between different segments of the market? And I think I'd focus on the things that take up a lot of time and don't appear to add much value, um, both in terms of consumer protection, market integrity, and the creation of competition in financial services. So one of the things I would focus on is unnecessary reporting, and that's both to clients and to regulators. Um, I think you know there are lots of issues with the transaction reporting regime. I think I'd limit it to the markets that really matter, where market abuse is most prevalent and uh, the greatest risk, so equity and debt securities and related synthetics. Um, And when it comes to error reporting, I'd introduce a materiality threshold. Um, And I'd also simplify the transaction reports as well to cut out information that seems not to serve much purpose. Um, I would revisit the close links regime. We've got clients that spend a lot of time and effort getting their close links notifications right. No one at the FCA seems to review the data they receive or do anything with it. Um, I'd look at pillar three reporting and whether that actually benefits anybody, and whether that could be slimmed down. Um, Annex four reporting as well. Um, take a good hard look at what the SE actually does with the data, um, and if there are aspects of it that aren't being used now that we're outside of the EU, uh, maybe make wholesale changes to the reporting. Um, I would remove a number of material change notification requirements from the ARF and D regime. Um, Certainly get rid of that one month period before the changes take effect. Um, Get rid of net short position reporting, or at least make the thresholds consistent with the long regime. Simplify the IFPR as it's over-engineered at the moment. Um, I'd revisit remuneration regulation for asset managers, whether that's strictly necessary. and I think clarify the scope of this short-selling regime and MAR to remove from its scope issuers that aren't properly listed in the UK or the EU because it's very extratorial, extraterritorial in nature. So that's my sort of shopping list of things I'd take a look at.
0: And uh, <laughs> if I if I may ask, if any of those are going through, or well, I should say, is it likely that any of those Will appear?
2: Um, well, um, I would hope the FCA would take that approach. That may, Maybe the details you know won't be uh, the same as all the things that I would change. But I hope they will take a look at the entire rule book with fresh eyes and use those three principles as the guiding principles. Does it benef- benefit anyone? Is it working the way it should? And are we sufficiently differentiating between different segments of the market? And I think if you take that approach, you inevitably – come to the conclusion that quite a few of these items either need to be removed from the rulebook or changed significantly.
0: Well, as I say, that a, is a comprehensive list and I'll be very interested to see if any of those appear. Um, I just want to go back to something you, you mentioned before because the draft bill makes some specific changes to requirements that are derived from MIFID 2 and MIFIR uh, that were consulted on in the uh, Wholesale Market Review. What can you tell us about this? Yes,
2: so we've already had uh, the MIFID quick fix, which abolished, among other things, the um, RTS 27, 28 requirements, the 10% portfolio depreciation notification for asset managers. So there's already some steps in the right direction there. Um, The wholesale markets review changes uh, or will remove, modify some other aspects of the MIFID 2 regime which don't appear to stand up to that proper cost-benefit analysis. Um, Many of the changes are actually focused on sell-side firms, but there are a few of them that have got relevance for asset managers. So one is the removal of the share trading obligation. So in response to the market fragmentation that was initially permitted under MIFID 1, MIFID 2 introduced a requirement that trades in EU-listed equities by EU MIFID firms to be conducted on EU trading venues or with EU systematic internalisers or with overseas venues that have been deemed equivalent. It's been a fairly unworkable regime right from the get-go, made even more difficult once the UK left the EU, particularly for EU firms with UK branches or vice versa, where compliance with the EU share trading obligation for stocks with a dual listing in the EU and UK meant breaching the UK share trading obligation or vice versa. Um, the explanatory notes to the government's proposals say that the evidence suggests that the share trading obligation has actually prevented firms from accessing the most liquid markets and achieving the best result for investors and so the proposal is that the new bill when it becomes law will remove the share trading obligation so uk MiFId firms will be entirely free to trade uk listed shares where they like. Um, The second proposal that's got some relevance to asset managers is the removal of the double volume cap mechanism. So under the MIFID-2 rules, when trading volumes on dark venues exceed 4% of the overall EU volume for the stock, that venue has to close for six months. And when trading on all dark venues exceeds 8% of EU volume, then all dark venues have to close. These are venues with pre-trade transparency waivers. And there's a UK equivalent regime now post-Brexit. So for the UK regime, the bill is going to remove that requirement. And I think that should lead to more stable sources of liquidity and greater choice uh, for asset managers in terms of where they do their trading. Um, there's a provision that's going to align the derivatives trading obligation with the Emir clearing obligation. They were meant to be aligned and there's been some divergence um, with the Emir refit. So this is just now tidying that up to make sure that they cover the same instruments. And there's a mandate for the FCA to replace the post-trade transparency regime for fixed income instruments and derivatives with a regime that will limit the the rules to liquid and standardised contracts. Uh, They're the ones that benefit most from the regime. Um, And the other big change, I think, affecting asset managers is that the FCA will no longer set commodity position limits. Uh, the right to do so will now transfer to the trading venues. Um, And so that means we may now see some commodity derivatives that don't have position limits, whereas under the MIFID regime, it was mandatory for the s limits for all commodity derivatives.
1: Darren, the the bill will also see greater clarity on the treatment of new and emerging areas of financial services and related risks, including the regulation of stable coin
2: as a means of payment. What has been discussed? So, there's an introduction of uh, a more nimble infrastructure for bringing activities into the scope of regulation. There's a new concept in the bill called designated activities, and that's different to regulated activities as they wouldn't require FCA authorisation, but the FCA would have the power to make binding rules for persons who carry on those designated activities sort of halfway house between what we've got at the moment and, uh, and unregulated areas. And I guess this could be used as an interim step for bringing particular sort of new area of uh, the market into the state of regulation while the FCA and the Treasury work out how to regulate that new asset class or new activity. And then turning now specifically to stablecoin, the bill contains some new provisions relating to what they call digitally settled assets. That's effectively digital assets, the value of which is tethered to fiat currency that can be used to settle payment obligations. And what the bill does is it gives the Treasury the power to create a regulatory regime in which the current rules that apply to e-money issuers and payment service providers will be expanded to these digitally settled assets with appropriate modifications that can be made uh, in the Treasury's discretion. So it's the it's the sort of opening step towards the UK starting to regulate on a licensable basis the world of digital assets.
0: So Darren, you mentioned the bill has already had two readings, which I believe means that it's now at the committee stage. So what are the next steps in this process? And are you able to give us any sort of timeline? Uh, notwithstanding the recent political upheaval sure. so, here in the So yeah, as you say, it's
2: now receiving line by line scrutiny from the Public Bill Committee. And once the committee reports, it will go back to the Commons for the third reading. That's expected to be sometime in early November. It then goes through three reading stages in the House of Lords before getting royal assent. And there's a clue in the end of the bill, the last provision, because it says that the draft. Uh, in the draft, that it's going to be called the Financial Services Markets Act 2022. And so that strongly suggests that the government thought at the time this was late before Parliament that royal assent was going to be obtained this year. So my best guess is that we will see um, it finishing the parliamentary process this year. Obviously, uh, that's not the end of the story, as the bill's just a framework, and the real work on reforming the UK regime is going to start once it's actually in force.
1: Can our listeners find out more information about this
2: bill? Presumably on your list. Yeah, so I, 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 mean, I would say the government's explanatory notes on the government website, that document's very, very useful in understanding what the principles are behind the bill. Um, and if you want to do a deeper dive, the outcomes document from the Future Regulatory Framework Review, uh, which published on the same day, the bill is worth a look as well. And then you're absolutely right, Simmons and Simmons has produced a useful summary of the new legislation available on the Insights section of our website. If you Google Simmons financial services bill, that article should come up as the first search result.
0: Before we let you go, I just have to ask, uh, in addition to the FSMB, comprehensive though it may be, investment funds compliance and regulatory inbox continues to be very full. What trends are you seeing from the matters that you're working on with your hedge fund and alternative investment clients? Uh, Slightly sort of... uh,
2: Coloured, in my view, by what happened last week, because last week was the uh, deadline for a lot of firms uh, to get their ICARAs finished and their uh, submissions in the MIF-007 to the FCA. Uh, So typically, firms with a 3112 counting reference date chose the end of September uh, as their submission date for the ICARA uh, report. Um, So we had a lot of questions last week uh, including some, some extensions uh, of that submission date on completing the ICRA and completing the related form and MIF 007. Um, that should all die down now. Um, but what we're also seeing um, this quarter is an absolute flurry of activity on market abuse. Um, so we've had Market Watch 69 from the SEO, we've had the, the Chris Ghent case, the fine for City for surveillance failings. And a recent high-profile case, um, which is a U.S. case involving the arrest of a fund manager while on a holiday. Um, and I think that's led to a, 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 a real flood of requests for training um, on market abuse, just as a sort of reminder uh, by firms to their staff of what they can and can't do. Um, and assistance with market abuse risk assessment. So one of the key features of Market Watch 69 was a, a message to firms from the SCA saying um, you need to carry out a risk assessment. It's got to be detailed and granular. And then beyond that, um, there's the new consumer duty that comes into full stream in the course of next year. So our fund manager clients are generally trying to understand the impact of that new duty for them. There are some new rules on financial promotions um, of high-risk investments coming into force at the beginning of December. Um, so if you've got retail somewhere in your distribution chain, including coming in through private wealth managers, um, then that's something that you need to focus on. And last, but not no means least, uh, ESG, and particularly TCFD compliance, which for most of our clients starts in earnest next year.
0: Well, I mean, my key takeaway from this is that although it is extremely easy to get distracted at the moment with all the macroeconomic and, and geopolitical concerns going on, there really are some fundamental issues that should not be ignored like this FSMB bill. And it sounds like it's coming sooner than we might have expected. Uh, so certainly one to watch. And I just want to say thank you so much for your time and giving us this very timely my debrief. My pleasure. Good talking with you.
3: Hi, this is Jacqueline Bouchard, head of ESG at Prequin, and you're listening to Amas: The Long Short Podcast. Join me in episode 29, where I discuss the challenges of applying ESG principles to both private and public markets. Enjoy.
0: The Longshore was brought to you by AMA, the Alternative Investment Management Association, the global representative for the alternative investment industry. As always, you can get the latest episodes by subscribing to The Longshore on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music, or by streaming episodes directly from our website, AMA.org. Thanks for listening.